Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zipper. And we have a guest with us today. Hey guys, I'm Naveen Mishra. Welcome to the show, Naveen. Thank you. Uh, you are here because you expressed an interest in talking about post-scarcity societies with us. Yes. Uh, before we get too deep into that, can you tell us what a post-scarcity society is for those people who don't know yet? Star Trek. Okay, that's... That is a very good example, but you got to define it more than that because there's a lot of things in Star Trek. <laughs> I know. Uh, I would say societies and economic incentives, incentives in general, are defined by scarcity and therefore distribution mechanisms uh, for assets of whatever kind or consumables. Post-scarcity societies would imply that there's either a infinitely efficient distribution mechanism or a infinitely scalable asset. And then economics and incentives offer those kinds of incentive mechanisms, basically. Uh, you said a infinitely scalable asset. Would a single infinitely scalable asset do it? Do we it depends, right? If if there's reprodu- reproducibility, if there's in- transformation capabilities, then sure. But the goal, if, there, if there's infinite gold, you can't really eat gold. Right. I guess we technically have infinite atoms, or at least as many as we can as many reasonably as we can. There reach. You go. Yeah. yeah. But we can't we can't use them for everything. Exactly. I think. Uh, sorry to barge in, but. Uh, there's this uh, dichotomy between math and physics where math is very comfortable with infinities and physics is not. So any any of this discussion about scarcity and stuff uh, leads right into pseudo-randomness and pseudo-infinities, which I think we, if, we're, if we are technically rigorous, we should be on the math side of things and use infinities. But because we are not and we're having fun here, I would say we'd stick to the physical part of things and stick to pseudo-infinities. Okay. What what's a pseudo infinity? What things that I can't reach? Okay, things that I can't end by the lifetime of the universe or the heat death of the universe. You know. Okay, cool. So for all practical for purposes. For all practical purposes. All right, cool. And that is the way we will be using the term today. So why are you so in- interested in post scarcity societies? I want to build one. Ooh, build one. Yes. Can well, I want to get to as close to that as possible. So most of my work currently. Uh, whether that be through the companies that I'm working with or some of the things that I'm doing on the side, uh, want to help create a efficient marketplace tending towards that infinite or for all practical purposes, infinitely efficient distribution mechanism. Okay. Real quick, why would an infinitely efficient distribution mechanism be enough if we don't have enough um, food or whatever other asset we need? The way I think of these things is to have... Uh, a mental model of betting on things that don't change. I think this is what I stole from Jeff Bezos. Right? He, he likes to bet on things that don't change, and it kind of makes sense to me. So uh, humans are always going to be greedy. There's always going to be finite resources. I don't think we're going to get infinite resources. So a pseudo way or an easier way to hack post-scarcity is to make a distribution model that's scalable and efficient. Okay. But we still wouldn't have an infinite number of, I don't know, slippers. Exactly. We wouldn't have an infinite number of slippers, but maybe they are infinitely reusable. Maybe they are, they can be transformed into belts. All right. So like a smart matter sort of thing. Yes. So what is it that you are doing to help usher in this future? <laughs> <laughs> Since you, you, you kind of led with, I'm working on this, and now I'm curious what you're doing. I So we're not into the smart matter... Uh, evolution just yet we're just basing on the distribution mechanism so uh everybody wants money and it's a proxy for a lot of other things so i'm working on a way to distribute money uh based on effort which effort is 
it's uh, we're trying to get to as close to a meritocracy as possible so things that i'm working on right now uh v0.1 if you could call it would be collective action platforms and collective incentive platforms where people come together work on an idea or a product right get that out the door it provides some value to some set of people and they capture that value and distribute it efficiently i want to stop you when you said distributes money based on amount of effort doesn't that incentivize people to be really bad at things because i know that like a small child is going to put a lot more effort into lifting uh, a heavy object than i will right 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 so when i say effort i meant uh, value creation effort okay right so i can be sisyphus and earn infinity but that's not what we're going for because because that's not going to be valuable to anybody else in that network so effort is linked to value provided okay what what's the incentive to be more efficient at providing the value though if if it is effort based rather than uh, results based no no it is results based it is right so okay. i said effort well effort to value would imply result okay i just try to keep it generalized okay i don't know that's a character flaw i guess all right it gets complicated <laughs> it gets complicated sorry i got completely sidetracked with that that effort thing uh, Stephen, did you want to jump in with anything? Um, just to say that I appreciate the virtue of general uh, exa- or general explanations, but you know, if there are specific examples or any particular ways to bring it home, those are good too. Uh, but I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't think it's a flaw to be generalizable. So, how close do you think we are to post scarcity? Not that close, uh, but there's. I like a lot of idioms. So there's another idiom that says the future is already here; it's not distributed evenly. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it was Gibson. There you go. So, I think. If you give the right parameters to that question of how close we are to scarcity, in some sections of humanity, we're already there. But in most sections, we're not. And in those sections, we are post-scarce for only some types of goods and not others. Can you give examples? Uh, or an example? Because I am surprised to hear that there is anywhere in the world that is post-scarce right now. It's not post-scarce, but it's close to it, I would say. But uh, an example would be electricity for the ultra wealthy thanks that's the exact that's the example i was going to throw out because like you can leave your lights on all the lights on and all your electronics on all the time and you're not going to run out of power here here in your apartment in the states exactly. right so um you know if you're in puerto rico that's a different matter because until your generator runs out of gas then then you're burning then you're through burning your power that right but although i might uh, run out of money if i spent a lot of electricity i, I realize it would be very hard ultra wealthy caveat from him so he well, actually he his example is better <laughs> <laughs> i think even medium wealthy in in the first world would get you basically limited electricity i i've, I've heard that um the information economy is basically post-scarcity because once something has been digitized it, it is infinitely reproducible and you don't take away that wealth from anyone else when you copy it that's a great that brings up the same dichotomy that we just talked about, right? So when you give the information economy example, I think it's an example of the uh, infinitely distributed good, right? It's artificially scarce in that it, it was my thought. It, it is a flaw or a, a negative on my part that I cannot uh, impose intellectual property rights on this information economy, right? So it's an artificially scarce good that's infinitely reproducible. Yeah. How do you feel about the fact that there are all these artificial restrictions on on information so that it is not a completely post-scarce environment. It's a good needle to thread, and it I think is a good intellectual exercise to figure out where you lie on many issues. Uh, so you could approach it in the access way of saying it is infinitely distributable with infinitesimally 
expensive, right? It's cheap to distribute, which means access should be free, and any restriction you put on it is arbitrary. You you can then come to it from the creator's perspective to say the creator put some effort into it, whether that's an original thought, which is just you know brain voltage, but or it's some art or something that the creator created and that there's some cost to that yeah right right like and steven's programming something right now but exactly he wants to get paid something for it eventually exactly and maybe steven wants to get recurring revenue for it because he has to live another day and he doesn't want to program the second day so uh when you look at it as an ecosystem perspective then i think setting value gets to be very very difficult and if there's dynamic pricing so if i can uh, contribute in any way to that IP, to that information asset, then I think that dynamic pricing model makes a lot of sense to information assets. Okay. Do you do you think the in pricing part is important? I ask because we are recording a podcast right now. Yes. And podcasts are basically like free labor. We we take our thing, we put it out in the world, it gets reproduced forever. We never see any money from it, really. Aside from, you know, from now and then people give us money on Patreon, which is really nice, and we thank them for it. But I I get a lot of things for free off the internet as well. I right. listen to many podcasts that I don't pay any money for, and I uh, watch videos on YouTube and listen to music on uh, Spotify and stuff without paying for it. And I sort of feel in a way that making these podcasts is a way to help pay back to the system. I, I don't feel as bad taking all this stuff from the system without paying for it if I am putting things into the system as well, right. which I know at least some people uh, listen to. And is is that a workable model for other things as well? Or is that even a workable model for the internet? I mean, people do complain a lot about, yeah, I'm a YouTube celebrity. Millions of people know me. I can't fucking pay my electricity bill. That's a great point. And I think your first example, uh, your first uh, way of saying it was better when you said I I pay for this but I don't pay money for this or I don't get money for this right so uh, when I say price uh, it doesn't have to be cash or or fiat currency it, it, when you say YouTube you don't pay for YouTube you do pay you do pay by your attention they get to sell you stuff they get to put ads in front of it so you're paying something so there's a I uh, use ad asset liberally <laughs> I know but even then right there's uh, a monetization model where we don't know the value of things the, if there is such a thing as an implicit value to a YouTube video, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we we are so abstracted from it that, that that value is invisible to us and we expect things for free now. So I think there, there's always value there. How to price it and how to extract that value is a conversation to be had. And that, uh, I think, is where an exchange model or a dynamic pricing model makes sense. And, and that's where you have to talk about price. Okay. Is that does that interface with what you're doing with your uh, distribution efforts? Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> so the company uh, that I am uh, part of uh, called Crowdraising is a platform where uh, people can get together to create an asset. For right now, it's a, it is a digital asset. So there is IP being created, and you can get paid, or you can get you can extract value from the, from that asset either by network usage or by payment in kind. Oh. So. Wow. That's right. kind of cool. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, these types these types of things have been around uh, longer than this. Is obviously, not the first try, uh, but this is the uh, the first try to do this at scale. How do you get it to catch on, though? If people get get their stuff for free without having to pay back into the system, 
if they don't want to. They're not. Well, they're not doing it in our system. In our system, there's a pr- there's a price point attached to it. I see. So either that's through in-kind services, through donation, through fiat currency. It is what it is. It's just that you have to select how you have, want to participate in this economy. Okay. So how do you expect that we will get to a post-scarcity world eventually? By having similar conversations to the one we're having right now. So by studying these uh, information asset marketplaces or by studying these information economies, electricity economies, and figuring out what incentives got us there and maybe how we can modify those structures to, to not have a ad-funded or a third-party funded model where the value is not uh, monopoly extra extracted. I kind of see what you're saying, but don't we also need to have some uh, major innovation in how we produce material goods as well? Yes. Hence replicator. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, going back to the distribution model or the infinite assets, uh, we can either create infinite assets or reuse them infinitely. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, my even, point even is... Even taking an asset and reusing it requires some inputs, though. Yes, it does. My, my point is we're never going to get to whatever that end state is. It's always going to be a tending towards kind of a function, right? Uh, I think there's a whole bunch of gain to be had, orders of magnitude difference in uh, scarcity or in access to resources that could be had just by uh, flattening the distribution model or making it more efficient. Orders of magnitude. Yes. Holy crap. Okay. G- take any... Uh, give me an asset that's incredibly scarce. Um, food in some parts of the world. There you go. Sure. Yeah. Food's a good one since we all need that. So there's... We could... There have been multiple attempts to solve this, but you, you could either go two ways. You could say Soylent. Right. Or Soylent-like examples where it's uh, minimally expensive to produce and distribute. Or you could say we create this uh, marketplace of uh, distributed, for lack of a better word, distributed distribution, where it says it's as easy to distribute food to Puerto the third world as it is to a Walmart somewhere here, right? So there's something blocking us in creating a, bl- a generalized, you know, white space Walmart across a planet. Yeah. I briefly wanted to say also i don't think soylent is the best example (laughs) soylent still costs a lot more than rice does it does it does no that was just a product wise example right okay it it is what it is so soylent is soylent wherever you make it yeah gotcha so is the problem i guess best solved by either making things easier to make or making them as hard as they are to make now but having an easier time getting them to places that need them both but i think the uh, most gains will be gotten by making them easy t- to get wherever the person is, where the usage is. I can... Okay, so I sort of agree with you a bunch on that because the world has been enriched greatly by how much cheaper it has become to just ship things ship nowadays. Things. Yeah, and, uh, and obviously there is a lot of inefficiencies in getting things to where they need to be, which causes famines and such. But when people think of post-scarcity worlds, they usually think of worlds where you don't have to work if you don't want to. Like Star Trek. You can work if you like, or you could not work for the entire rest of your life. Uh, and we're not going to get there as long as you still need humans working in the fields to make the food, right? Or right. Or do you, right. do you have this, a different conception no, no, of post-scarcity? No, no, no. This, well, nothing we talked about required humans to be working there. We're just saying, so on the order of magnitude uh, increase in efficiency... There could be 
indoor farms, factory farms somewhere else. There could be hydroponics, uh, aeroponics that are done. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard, but uh, in New Jersey, right off the turnpike, there's a giant aeroponics building that's building cabbage. In What's aeroponics? It, aquaponics is a waterbed. Aeroponics is a mist-based. So there's plants that are grown in mist. No way. Yes. Neat. Yeah, so see, and uh, they have pink LEDs because plants absorb pink light better than regular light. So it's a totally controlled, hermetically sealed system to grow cabbage or whatever high cash crop they want to grow, which could be marijuana in the next year. But, you know, but uh, systems like that where you take human involvement out, that's, I think, is where the efficiency is going to come. So are we aiming for a world where basically humans don't have to work at all and robots or something else does all the work for us? (laughs) Don't have to work, yes. But again, betting on things that don't change, people want to work. Okay. For right now, I, uh, Max Tegmark has this new book, Life 3.0. I just heard about it uh, a couple of weeks ago. I haven't read it yet. Exactly. So uh, he gives this great definition of there's this uh, subset of people who don't have jobs, are happy as fuck about it, and they're children. Ah, okay. okay. Or Inyash a week ago. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. See, happy as fuck is an interesting term, though. Because I was, I was extremely happy while I was writing my novel, right? And, I mean, that's, that's sort of a job, though. It, it wasn't a job I was getting paid for, and I could work whenever I wanted. But once I was done with that, I kind of just started, started floating. And I swear, my last two months of unemployment, I was doing basically nothing at all. I was sitting around wasting my day and starting to feel really shitty about myself. And it was weird. As soon as I got an offer for, for a job... Oh, uh, by the way, to any listener who cares, I just got a new job. Started four days ago. But as soon as I got an offer, like immediately I felt better. I was like, oh, my time is worth something again. Exactly. <laughs> it is worth exactly this dollar amount, whereas <laughs> before it was worthless and I was worthless. <laughs> well, that, that hits the point that I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you brought up Tegmark's new book, which I haven't read but I've also heard of, because... Yeah, there are people, there are children who like not working, but kids don't, you know, well, they, kids don't, play, they don't have the, they don't have the pressure. Work because that's how they learn. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I think, yeah, I mean, they would be bored sitting around all the time, too. Probably worse than us, but. They don't have alcohol. <laughs> yeah, or access to alcohol, anyway. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, because I, when I, I was looking for a job a year ago for like five months, and that sucked. Because I'm not the kind of person who can sit at home and write a book and feel good about myself. I just sat at home not writing a book and hating myself. So <laughs> um, there, there's the question of like, how do people find meaning when they don't, you know, have... It's tough because on the one hand, I don't like assign my life's meaning to having a job, but it gets me out of bed and gets, gives me something to do and gives me the resources to get the stuff I want. Um, I suppose if I had all the stuff I wanted, I, I imagine I'd still be bored. So like just having something that I... I guess have to do gives me some, you know, I think meaning is having a lot of double meanings here, pun intended. Um, but uh, yeah, is my question generally yes. understandable? So yes. where, do, where do we go from there? No, uh, that's a great point. And I, and I like, and thank you for making the distinction between meaning and job and right. So uh, there's this good uh, framework for uh, analyzing things called the jobs to be done framework. So apply that to a job. What, so what, for lack of a better word, what job does the product or thing that is called a job do for a human? 
it gives you income, which access to like buy things and stuff. Social structure, right? We have work friends. Mostly if you're spending eight hours in a day, you might hate the guy, but you know, you get to talk to him or her about whatever you want to talk to about. Um, and then there's that uh, ephemeral meaning of long of just work, basically just exercise for the intellect or just solving problems. And like time structure, I think, is a fourth thing. So there's the social structure that you get from from having a network of people that you have to interact with, but also just like, well, I've got to be there at eight or eight thirty or whatever time your job starts, or seven if you know whatever. But um, what if nobody was there? What if that time structure was imposed solely on you? Yeah, I. For me, myself, I wasn't great at setting my own time structure. To, I guess because I had nothing to do. No, no, no. I'm um, saying in a job. Oh. I'm saying the social structure is the underlying reason for the time structure. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, and also, like, I guess even if you worked by yourself and all you did was talk to your boss once a month, like, they would still, you know, they cared when you clocked in or out or something. But you're right. That's a pretty contrived example. Right. So, yeah, that's true. It's the social connection right. there. No, but uh, you, your point plays a good amount in the remote work economy right there's a lot of people working from fiji doing low and code work here and you can't my, impose... my roommate and best friend uh works from home there you go great see so and you can't impose a time structure on them because they're doing whatever they're they're doing so uh if we're unbundling the job i think the hardest one to replace would be that social structure or that or that drive meaning whatever you want to call it that would all everything else we can automate or you know, abstract. And if there's, if there are other things that you could do to get that, like community involvement, like intellectual pursuits, like writing a book. So if, if that access is there, then I think we shouldn't have a problem. I think this, once we abstract away the individual bits, that the meaning part of things is the hardest part, but everything else we can take away. I just, I hate how, I hate how I get this weird feeling of meaning sort of from my job because it's really there, there's very few things as meaningless as accounting it's no it's it's basically playing a video game that's that's just juggling numbers all the time over and over and there's it, it's it is not a fulfilling job necessarily but i still feel like like the 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 mouse in the the maze or the cog in the machine i'm like yay i'm doing this and it's useful and i don't know it's it's weird that I get meaning out of that, and I don't like it. <laughs> no, well, I don't know what Steven wants to say, but accounting is great. Accounting is the basis for our for a marketplace, right? For if I want to build a distribution structure, I have to account for it somewhere. So I, I love accounting. No, okay. I'm even though I'm terrible at it. Okay, okay. So, but I love it. So meaning is meaning. We you could there are people who find meaning in cutting crops. There are feeding. So I, I think I think the struggle is more to find meaning nowadays like we solved the whole can you survive question quite a while ago at least in the first world and now it's the trying to find meaning question that's really hard exactly and that is an issue exactly well you could uh hack this in a way of saying go after uh big hairy audacious goals so if there are there are civilization level goals then there's plenty of work to be done and if your basic living is taken care of then those big hairy audacious goals would give you meaning, would give you, you, people will be obsessed and they will do that to failure almost. How many people do you think that actually encompasses? Very few. But when I say big hairy audacious goal, that just doesn't mean terraforming Mars. That could also mean making sure everybody on, nobody on the planet is depressed. 
Like Council of Troy is also a valid option here. No, but I, I guess what I meant was how many people do you think would actually want to pursue something like that? Like when you're not doing anything else, it's often hard to get motivated to do anything. Like I guess right. I had a number of months and Steven had a number of months where we weren't really doing anything and we didn't do much either with all that time that we had. And I, I know at least a few people that I'm sure if they didn't have to ever work again would really not do much of anything with their time. Right. It's not... It's it is not person dependent and it's not time dependent as well. Like I could be I could be running after some terraforming Mars goal if we want to take with that example for four months and then decide, um, eh, it's not built for me and go try something else, mm-hmm. right? The issue is getting that initial, as you say, inertia out of the way of saying, okay, my needs are taken care of, right? I have to do something. And I think at the very least, people would do it just out of boredom, like one point beyond suicide you could get somebody to do do this stuff so i have we have people up to that point to bring on to this i'm kind of going through an update in my head right now so like one of the the classic things that like comebacks to you know something like universal basic income is like people will get bored they'll have no meaning because they don't have jobs that sort of thing and i'm wondering if that's actually a hard problem because it just occurred to me that there's children who are fine but there's, there's the opposite class of people uh the retired people like my grandma's been retired for 20 years and i get the feeling that even if her you know, her retirement pension was five times what it was, she'd probably live a life much like she lives. She gardens a lot. She, you know, socializes with her friends. Um, my partner's dad just retired last summer and he's got this, uh, he, at least one or two old cars that he's rebuilding. And like, you know, so the, I mean, there's, there's probably projects that he's had on his mind for years and he's like, all right, I'm going to finally do this. So maybe this isn't a hard problem. People maybe get over boredom once they uh, like, I think part of what stressed me out when I was looking for a job is that I had no resources. And like every time that I like, all right, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee so I can get the energy to do this. I'm like, oh, wait, that's literally 6% of my month's income or of my, my bank account balance right now. Right. So um, if if the resources were taken care of, then, yeah, you'd find things to do. Maybe this isn't a hard problem. Yes, I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> no, no, no. I totally agree with you. Huh. OK. Yeah. So this. Maybe I've been looking at it the wrong way this whole time. I, I'm still I'm still thinking on this, but uh, or I'm still I guess perpetuating that change of mind through the rest of my beliefs. It's going to be a few minutes, but <laughs> that's interesting. Um, I don't know if I have much to add other than I am now strongly suspecting that the boredom problem is solvable. Unless unless what do you think? You no, I I I think it's solvable. I think um. I mean, I I was never bored when I was at Burning Man, but you read um I I know you read this because you are the one who suggested it to me. I recently read Friendship is Optimal, Heaven is Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> the uh the 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 fanfic from Friendship is Optimal, which is advertised um as as terrified Jadkowski. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know they started advertising it that way. Yeah. Uh but it's it makes a neat argument that in a post-scarcity society with a nearly infinite lifespan, uh, everyone would eventually... Wait, wait. Those are two different... Let's double-crux that. I know. Point. They are two right. different things. So They're two very different things. But eventually everyone would turn into either a loop intelligence or a post-human intelligence. And the loop intelligence thing was kind of how, looking back on it, I think I was maybe getting into at... um at Burning Man, but we're basically 
you kind of just end up doing the same thing over and over. And maybe the loop lasts for thousands of years before you start repeating stuff. But there gets to a point where there's only so many things that you really enjoy doing. There's these people you like hanging out with. There's these things you like doing. And you will eventually just keep going back to them and doing them over and over for all eternity. And becoming like a loop instead of a person. And I don't know. We're kind of loops now. We have jobs. We get up. No, you could change stuff. the definition a slight bit to say instead of saying loop, you could say mastery. It's yeah. the same thing. You do. If I'm, I don't know, sharpening a blade, that's still a loop. But I get maybe a, a pretty nice katana at the end of that, right? So it's just changing that conversation from it may be a loop, it may be posthuman, but it's the the perception. I think when we're when we're speaking it in these these scales, perception matters a whole lot, and that could be an accelerating perception, like a mastery over a skill, versus a loop, which you have to get bored of after whatever number of tries. Well, I think you just don't notice after a while. If it's thousands of years, you kind of lose track of your earlier memories, and you just keep hanging out with the same people and doing the same stuff. Again, this is the third thing we're introducing here scarcity doesn't say we have to be immortal. That's true. Being immortal doesn't have to say we have to lose our memory. That's a good point. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the vampire fanfic works a lot here. Like, the older the vampire is, the more powerful they become, yet they are more reticent, right? So if we all turn into vampires who don't drink blood, maybe that's a good thing. I think there's also the fact, like, I, I guess there's loop and mastery are two really different framings of like the same kind of same thing, thing exactly. you know sisyphus pushing that rock up a hill for eternity is a loop but he's well the question is is he having fun or can his life be meaningful but throw that out and just say is is his life well i guess uh putting it another way um that sounds super boring but that's that fits the bill of being a loop but so does like i don't know taking on some huge projects having a great time doing it and then cool did that it's all awesome i'm gonna start this next new thing um or you know I'm going to make a 2.0 of the first thing I did. So, yeah, I think they're, that I like the mastery phrasing a lot better, not just because it's more cheerful, but I think it fits better. Because you're not, I mean, Sisyphus can get as good as he wants as pushing that rock up the hill, but he's, he's still not, I, without digging into it, I don't think he's having fun, right? So We don't know that. That's my point. Well, yeah. That's great, but... We, pick, pick something more boring than pushing a rock up a hill, but yeah. No, let's stick with that. My point is, and I, I, I want to... Uh, improve on this mastery point because I haven't thought of it yet. Um, let's say Sisyphus master. Let's say Sisyphus has memory and is optimizing for something. We don't know at the end of a thousand years that he will not be super luminal, right? But even at super luminal, he just might be pushing a rock to eternity. But the issue is there's something to be optimized. I, I think having and I was uh, self-employed and therefore fun employed for a very long time as well. Uh, <laughs> So and I faced the same problem. I started writing blogs. I went deep into like rationalist theory and you know the type of stuff people do with an internet connection. So uh, I think non-isolation and optimization for whatever value that is, positive, negative, you know, something. If I want to kill people, I would want to optimize to be the best killer on the planet or something, right? I don't care. Positive, negative, either way. So I. I I think the, the 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 solution to boredom would be non-isolation and mechanisms that push you to have these conversations of you're not doing anything, but guess what? Going back to that time structure, at 6.30 in the evening, you're going to be at the commons 
and there's going to be some dude playing a flute, right? And and your body would kick in to say, I want to beat that guy. So I will go learn the flute. So how do we, do you have any ideas of how we get to this place? How humans as a species get to this place? The, the place of post-scarcity. <laughs> okay, here's an interesting little tidbit. Me and my wife have a bet about humanity producing the replicator it's a 50-year bet it's on our shared google calendar so i'm hoping that we get to a to a matter replication machine or at least a matter recombinant recombinant machine and we're we're, we're taking like 0.1 steps there if we if we're talking about the physical world because in the information world we're already there right so data information money whatever you want to call this we're already there it's just a arbitrary restriction problem that's going to solve itself in two three generations max Right. So on the physical side of things, we have to get to atom level manipulation and recombinatory stuff where I think we need a whole lot of energy. So there's the energy create energy creation problem. And then there's the matter arrangement problem that we have to solve. Do you think it has to be atom level? Like 3D printers don't work at the atom level, but they're pretty damn cool. Right. But I'm saying it would be first principles basis. It would be more efficient to build something like if I had carbon atoms, I could go from building coal to diamond within the same set of carbon atoms, right? And if I was doing molecule level, maybe proteins and stuff like that, I could work with proteins. Yeah, I was thinking just optimally. I think we have to get to that atomic level manipulation. Okay. I, I, I almost feel like that's overkill. There's a lot of times I want to move a whole lot of atoms from one place to another, and it's much easier to do that on a mass scale than individual No, atoms. no, I totally agree. I'm just saying... Uh, just because there's a 3,000 horsepower Bugatti on the road doesn't mean that there's Fiat's also not on the road. Okay. Right? I'm just saying the know-how has to be there. And do you think you'll get you think we'll get there in 50 years? <sighs> My wife might win that bet. <laughs> All right. Is there money on this or is this just no, a, it's I just told bragging you so. rights. <laughs> <laughs> so, it wouldn't matter if there's money on it, because once you got post-scarcity... Yeah, what, once you got post-scarcity... <laughs> what do you need see, the money if, for? It, that's perfect. If I was you, I would bet that there wouldn't be a post-scarcity thing in 50 years, because then if you lose the bet, in post-scarcity, post <laughs> everything's <laughs> awesome, right? If you win the bet, you get a lot more money. <laughs> yeah, you guys are saying my wife's smarter than me? I Maybe a little bit. Well, unless... <laughs> on, on, only in this context, and only if she actually thinks that it'll happen in the next 50 years, but she wanted to bet against it, because then that way, if no, no, in 50 years we don't have master, or we don't have uh, the recombinator, at least she won the bet. Right, so. right. And also, no, no, because you didn't bet money. Maybe we could change that. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you guys think? How, are, do you, you guys think that we can't do this in, 50, in let's say, 100 years? We can't get to a post-scarcity world? I go back to, uh, there's a number of, God, it was just, I think it was just recently, Eliezer wrote No Fire Alarm for AI, a uh, really interesting essay, but he mentioned in there that uh, there's a lot of AI researchers who, when they're asked, how long do you think it'll be until... It's always 50 years, right? No, no, no. How long do you think it'll be until uh, machines can do every profession that humans do right now without needing human input? Uh, they say something, I don't remember the exact number. It was more than a century, I think less than two centuries, but something in like 120, 150 range. But when the f question is uh, phrased, uh, how long until you think any task that a human can do can be done as well by a machine, the number is like a quarter of that. Yeah. It's like 40 years or something. Yeah. And once you can do any task a human can do with a machine instead, that's basically where you don't need humans to work anymore, right? Well, we have car assembly robots. Humans still build cars. They do that's true because but need to and can are different yeah yeah 
And once it's, I don't know, I guess once it's cheap enough to have the, because you need machines to make robots right now, to make some robots. Okay. They, I mean, not machines, obviously machines, but you need humans to make, to design the robots. Right. And once you're at a point where you don't need humans in the loop anywhere at all, all you got to do is feed them energy and they'll do their thing, right? I'm, I'm own... totally against this AI apocalypse thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know more... if I want an apocalypse at no, all. No, but, but even then. Uh... I, I think if any task that a human can do can be done by a machine within 40 years, that's basically where you don't need humans anymore for anything. Don't need, yes. But that doesn't mean that we will come up with different needs, right? Right. It also, I guess, doesn't mean that the humans won't be cheaper, but... No, but that's that's just an arbitrary scale. If 10 robots can do it for X, yeah. 10,000 robots can do it for 0.001X, so human can get out of the loop. Yeah. Uh, I think if if it is just offloading effort, I think that is just part one of getting to poor scarcity there's there's a whole lot of uh there's a whole lot of social changes there's a whole lot of incentive changes that need to happen because even with this outsourcing effort to robots the the output is the same the control mechanism is the same for this for the economy right Right. you're saying i'm saying i'm i'm building widgets i get to build ten thousand widgets for one tenth the price but i'm still building widgets so that, I think, has to change at least a tiny bit. I think the economy would have to change drastically because as more and more robots do things, the, the people who own the robots and control the robots would get all the income and the people who don't own any robots would die of starvation. How is that different from anywhere else? So this is the voice exit dichotomy, right? Do, do, you, get, do you get to then uh, buy a gun and go start a robot killing spree? Right. No, I'm I'm just saying that's why our economy would have to change because once you don't need humans to do work anymore, what are the humans going to do if they don't have an income through some other means? So we have to get income through other means. Or uh, have put in place some sort of distribution system. There we go. (laughs) Now I got you. Or the wealth is distributed. (laughs) Or put people in in substrates that don't require food and shelter and that sort of thing. That's the major cluster. Yeah, there they would still require, or the robot body answer. Yeah, but they um, would still require energy inputs of some kind. Yeah, sure, but you know, <laughs> energy's cheap. I mean, yeah, and then it starts becoming. It's always a percentage of your income, though, right? If you can live off two cents a day, that's great. But you still have to make two and a half cents a day, or however much, and wages would just fall to two point zero one cents per day at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, uh, going back to betting on things that don't change. If we if we preserve the four Fs, right, feed, fight, flight, and mate, if we if we preserve them and abstract everything else, that all of these solutions are viable. The matrix answer is viable. The the brain in a vat, which I think again is a matrix, or the Isaac Asimov type, we're gonna get into some sort of shared consciousness model. All of these are viable if we keep those. Uh, optimization functions for lack of a better word which we call biological needs or something like that if we keep those open we can fight our way or do one of those f's our way into whatever future we want and i think anything that any solution that purports to change one of these f's i am very very skeptical of right people are not going to be suddenly i don't know peaceful or something like that how do you feel about the universal basic income then i i like the concept in theory but implementation is always weird, and and it, it is always implemented 
the wrong way. Maybe it has to come by negative taxation or something like that, where it's where the implementation is transparent enough and the and the process is transparent enough for people to still preserve the four Fs if we want to be still human. If we're talking post-human, then that's completely different. But preserving humans, I would say preserve the four Fs and any model that gets to UBI by preserving these four Fs, great. All for it. Wait, so how does the distribution approach? I sort of always assumed you meant uh, something like universal basic income for it to work uh, because, I mean, what's my incentive as Walmart 3.0 to ship stuff over the third world if they can't afford what I'm shipping them? If it was crazy, crazy cheap to ship, sure. Oh, I guess, okay, hold on. I just answered my own question. <laughs> um, if it was ridiculously cheap to get there and they could barely afford to pay for it, well, I'm still making a profit because it costs me like nothing to get it there. Is that right. the answer? Right. Okay. And why are they not just going it there? You know that I mean? too, yeah. There you go. So um, Okay, yeah, problem solved. Uh, I'm going to give myself half credit for that one. Do you not worry that if we had some sort of negative income or universal basic incomes, that sort of thing, that basically just cost of living, the cost of base housing and, and food wouldn't increase enough to eat that all up, and so people would be back where they were before? What? Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Why would cost of housing increase? It just rents increase. Everybody has an extra thousand dollars a month now, and so rents. So everybody up. gets an extra. The renters say, "Change my rent." Yeah, yeah. I would say that would so that's why it's a keeping the four Fs together kind of thing. That that is a true worry. But if you say that there has to be rent control, or if you say that now rent control never works, never but works. No, but I'm just saying, uh, people if you used to be able to live off making two dollars a day, right? And you now could. you cannot live off $2 a day in the U.S. But it's not inflation-adjusted $2. If you still made inflation-adjusted to whenever that was. Not sure if you no, could. No, you, you couldn't. But I'm just saying <laughs> the disparity is widely reduced. Okay. Right? So, yeah. so I think any model of UBI has to take into account the rent increases that you're talking about. So that's, again, going back to preserving the 4Fs. I, I have no idea how to solve that. That's why... I'm only sticking to the information assets, <laughs> which are much, much cheaper. So this seems like a, a race. If it's 50 years for, uh, you know, optimal distribution across the globe and only 40 years for full automation, uh, we're going to have this horrible 10-year window where the trillionaires are living in their compounds surrounded by razor wire and the, the rest of us are, like, scrambling to get through to take their food before, you know, they can easily distribute it and still make a profit off of it. Maybe the... Maybe the I'm, I'm torturing this analogy, but... I can see where in one scenario where, say, imagine if one company or, you know, one company of like six evil corp. Chief, yeah, evil corp owned with automation rights to like every self-driving car, every fast food restaurant and every farming piece of equipment. And suddenly they own, what, 35 percent of jobs in the U.S. Um, so then 35 percent of people don't have jobs anymore because all these robots are doing it. And there's not enough of anything to keep these 35 people, 35 percent of people afloat. Well, they're going to go after the people who have all the stuff, right? Evil Corp. So then they've got to basically barricade themselves and hide from the people that they fucked over to sell to the rest of us, right? Um, probably. I I imagine that those people would try to find jobs other ways and would... That's a lot of jobs. That's a lot that's of, people, a lot of jobs. That, that I, and I think one thing that we missed is why, does, why is there only one Evil Corp, right? Why is there only one thing? Name any... IP, any technology that has been monopolized to the unitary level, name one company that has monopoly globally over anything. It just doesn't exist. People will steal, right? That's why we have governments. So what I think uh, that was an 
good segue into talking about governance models and what you were talking about as well with the rent control. It was an good, easy segue. That, that's what I was going for. There we go. There <laughs> we go. That, you got to give me some time, okay? I'm just just waking up here. Okay. No, you're good. I'm, I'm just teasing. I was posing that bad thought experiment, but I'm glad no, you're no, no, something but, useful. No, uh, no, Governance models uh, also come into play, and I think the recent uh, – I know that you guys had uh, Reese Lindmark on – and he was talking about crypto countries and stuff. And that world is uh, just, just fascinating to watch from a governance perspective because they're grappling through the same issues that Wall Street grappled through 40 years ago. And it's all incredibly open. So we get to just open and just beat those governance models to death, right? And everybody gets to stress test them. And I think any solution of these distribution models would also have to come with a governance model attached to it. So I, I know you're really into crypto too. And is that because of the this ability to try out new governance models? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And uh, I don't know how into crypto you guys are, but uh, the the people that whose stated goal, stated goal was to build uh, on-chain, which is a trustless way of doing things governance model right so the thing that they set out to build was on-chain governance models suffered from bad governance in the real world and now are being sued mm. so th that cognitive dissonance is something that when we're building these kinds of distribution systems we should not allow what are they being sued for so the okay all of this is alleged and nobody can sue me because i am a dumb idiot and nobody listened to whatever i have to say okay G given that caveat allegedly what's going on there we go uh so it's a company called tezos where they raised 230 million dollars to build an on-chain governance platform okay but they still have to live in the real world so the founders uh created a non-profit foundation and i'm doing air quotes for the people listening in switzerland which uh because it has to be independent is being run by other people the other people that are running it three guys swiss guys uh say that they want to because on the books or on fiat books they're in control and they want to exercise that control and the founders the technical the founders that are running the actual build process also want control so on the books the swiss people have control and they're doing things that these guys don't want in a way that they're accruing value to themselves so my point is if you're doing these things it's a good idea to stress test them by using it on yourself or even better give it to your worst enemy Right, just give it to them. See, see what happens. And if you don't like the uh, what's happening to you, stop the project. I'm assuming the governance model is at least uh, somewhat of a metaphor because how is a uh, cryptocurrency going to enforce things like border control or? It's not okay. And people who say that we're going to have land titles and this and that, land titles are enforced here because if you don't follow the written code, a guy with a gun is going to come and shoot you. Right. Well. Hopefully, he'll try to arrest you first and only shoot you if you resist. No, but that's the fear, right? That's yeah, the stick. Yeah, yeah. So where's the stick on crypto? There's not. Right. So you would need a crypto equivalent of NATO, basically, that are crypto enforcers, which has the ability to turn into the arm of the Lord type uh, vigilante effort. So uh, without that enforcement, nothing. it's not going to change. So back to your accounting point, it's just an accounting system. So it, this is like saying SAP... Because SAP is being run by Vault. Say that. I'm sorry. Say that again. Because Volvo uses SAP as their accounting system, somehow SAP has control of my Volvo. That's not right. It's just an accounting system. So I think governance models would be notionally, notionally enforceable, 
but true enforceability would have to come with force. And I, I think the people in crypto's point of view is that we are evolving to a mental state where force would not be necessary, or they're continuing the arc of technology that reduces the application of force. Okay. Wouldn't we need in any sort of post-scarcity society some uh, Leviathan law enforcement entity? Again, yeah, governance model. But yeah. uh, see, what are the jobs to be done for that Leviathan enforcement entity? You could say implement enforce the law. You could say preserve status quo. What else? You could say maybe two other things. But we only want the enforce law part of it without the preserve status quo and without the, you know, jail dissidents and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, that depends. Maybe you really like the status quo. How is that different from now? I'm saying right. for a for a post-scarcity world where the person or the entity in charge of creating laws also doesn't have conse negative consequences of losing assets, right? If, if Naveen, Inyash, and Steven are in a post-scarcity world, then the entity that's governing them is also in that same world. You cannot be like girdle incompleteness to say this is somehow above it. That's why I have to rule it, right? So, so that's why I say there's a whole flattening happening where, where, where once we are post-scarce, then governance will be just governance and just for rule enforcement. Well, it seems once we are post-scarce, then whoever is ultimately in control of the things that make everything is the real power, right? There you go. So that's a great point that you're leading with. I'm just saying there there can be a flat government or a holacracy is not a, a requirement for post-scarcity, but for extended post-scarcity, i.e. people don't nuke themselves to death, for that to happen, then I think we are tending towards holocra holocratic models. Can you define holocratic? No, no management. Okay. Um, then who manages? Everybody. It's Every a, okay. It's a collective management. That's why I think crypto is important because it's a distributed accounting system where that account could just as well be votes. Okay. So we would, in that case, return to a system where the, the coalition was able to amass the most votes has the power? Right, but why would you coalesce? I don't know. You want to go explore Mars and other people don't? And you need a whole yeah, bunch of Earth's resources there, to go to Mars? Again. So it's not really post-scarce. If you need to impinge on my resources to do your thing, we're not really post-scarce. Okay. What if you really want that girl in high school to be your girlfriend and she doesn't want to? But that, that has nothing to do with resources. Uh, her attention is a resource. If you were like the right. son of someone who was extremely powerful, you could use that. To right, but wait, 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 wait. Okay, I think you're bringing up a good point of saying when we say post-scarce and when we're uh, shortening that or putting restrictions on that, we're saying material goods. We're okay. saying information. We're That's true. I moved the goalposts unfairly and without without uh, announcing that I was doing so. So you're right. Attention will always be scarce, and we should not be talking about that in a post-scarcity podcast episode. Because we're <laughs> no, talking no. about material scarcity, no, right? No, no, wait. We, there's no should or should not. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to declare it. Okay. So I, there's no post-scarcity attention, right? Yeah. I have, I'm going to live whatever I'm going to live unless I'm living immortally. Right. Which is the same distinction we made, I don't know, half an hour ago or whatever that was. Yeah. So if we are immortal, then again, why are you attracted to this girl? Right. Even if you're not, maybe whatever happens, happens, and we're still immortal, so great.
So I think resource poor scarcity or asset poor scarcity is very, very viable and very, very achievable. The hindrances are arbitrary and power mismatches for now. Once we get into ephemeral stuff like attention and information, we, we that's a whole other ballgame. I guess I, I think there's always going to be some certain subset of people that want power just for the hell of having it. And I don't think they're going to necessarily use it to kill all the rest of humanity and just have, you know, their six people in a walled compound while everyone else starves. I imagine they'd be more than happy to give everyone all the food and everything because why not? But if there's someone that like pisses them off or like, ah, this guy is a little too sexist or that girl is a little bit too much of a bitch and then just cut off the resources to that person and... You know, that's one person out of billions that's going to starve to death. And what's the world going to do against this this powerful coalition that can 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 do that sort of thing? I think we, the answer is in the question. You just said there will always be some subset. And my point is that will never be 51%. Okay. Or, that, or whatever coalition wouldn't be locally 51%. Even if that was, over time, there'd be self-correction mechanisms where you can only be bad for blank amount of time if everybody has the same power if access to resources equals power then you have no more power over me than i have over you then there's nothing really other than playing mind games yeah there's nothing really you can do that's kind of like if if now if we were all the same physical strength and like capability you could only be a dick for so long before other people shut you down right Right. exactly and just this this keeps assuming that the system somehow respects the wishes of the the, the, the people, like the 51%, right? Or, There's no or, respect. I'm just saying... Because whoever, basically, if, if the world, if the, the, the governance system is run on Ethereum or something, some, some right. cryptocurrency, right? Uh, who, perhaps I do not um, understand cryptocurrencies enough, no, no, no. but somebody uh, or some group can control that system, right? No, the point would be it's totally distributed. Okay. Right, so we're talking ground level. So independent mesh networks. I'm running my own goddamn satellites, and I'm doing packet running on my own satellites. But my own, I mean, community owned. Right. I don't want to bring the word community into this because it has other social, political con con. So I don't want to say that. But I'm just saying uh, from the ground up, right. So everybody has their own uh, connection to an accounting system and connection to uh, access to resources. The system is just notionally there for record-keeping purposes, right? If we preserve the four Fs, four people that want to do good will subdue one guy that doesn't want to do good. Guy or girl, right? So I think it's just people being people. Okay. All right. I, th- I think I'm just kind of flailing around at this point trying to find problems with it because I also no, you like can this always scarcity idea. Because charisma and charm aren't, are not scarce there's no way i can import your charm onto my onto myself oh so you can say how come they will not be another hitler right who amasses a whole bunch of people to do bad things that is a real problem but my point is great everybody gets together in a bar drinks beer they decide okay we're gonna take over uh now but i'm always saying there's gonna be more people that will stop them so it would be a long process if there is no exit option and if you have some super charismatic super charismatic super villain there's no stopping them anyway even in the system right no like, I'm, saying, I'm saying even if you have luther strange or whoever the super charismatic super villain is how many people can you amass so what why do people come to a super villain 
they're persuasive and charming. Is that for right now? I think there's a resource access issue as well. Oh yeah, sure. If if your supervillain can offer to pay you, that helps a lot right. too. Right. So let's so, say yeah. I have so bring that over to the poor scarcity world where we're saying I have everything I want. I I have access to everything I want. Right. So as a supervillain, you would have to be so persuasive, and you would have to use me the way nonprofits use me now, where they're using me on my volunteer time. So I would be doing bad stuff on my off time. How would that work? So, not to imply that our current president is a supervillain or anything. Oh, come <laughs> on, guys. But he doesn't he doesn't pay anyone to to vote for him and to carry out his policies for them or to support him publicly and yet right. a lot of people do anyway. They're right. Like, yeah, we like that Trump guy. We like what he's saying. We're on his side. Can I take a stab at this? Sure. So, I think running I want to anticipate something kind of like what your answer would be. Um and I imagine that's because people I'm going to butcher this and I want you to give me the, the better version, but people support a hypothetical supervillain because they need stuff, right? And they, they see their, their need of stuff or their access to stuff being threatened. You know, these people coming in are going to take it and there's only so much to get around or whatever, right? Is that part of the answer? I would say that's the entire answer. Okay. Yeah, that's true. He is actually offering them a lot of things by changing laws to favor them. To keep them in, you know, with their stuff. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Or their power or their resources or whatever. All right, fine. I can't find many problems with this post-scarcity idea. It's pretty cool. Aside from the implementation being, you know, ridiculously <laughs> yeah. hard. Yeah, aside from doing it, we have no problems. <laughs> so uh, before we, like, move on to listener feedback or whatever, what would you guys do? I guess both of you in turn. First, Naveen, what would you do with a, in a post-scarcity world? Oh, I have, well, in a very optimistic answer, I would say go after some of the big, hairy, audacious goals that I have. Right. So one of the things that I like to just throw out there is somehow invert the uh, Maslow's pyramid to say, if we if you had to achieve actualization first, what would you do? Right. Or if so, it's all self-actualization because we, we took care of all the other things. Uh, for me, give, I would give me your day to day for a while. In a post scarcity world. Yeah. Oh, man. That's a difficult. Can Stephen go first? <laughs> Stephen. Right now, someone rich dies, bequeaths $100,000 a year on you for the rest of your life, and it adjusts for inflation. What do you do with the rest of your life? Um, luckily, I had some thought on this because I just drove to uh, Boulder yesterday, and I passed a, one of the billboard signs for the lottery, and it was like $91 million. And so I was thinking about this a little bit, and I would like to think I would continue working in some capacity because I like what I do. Whether or not I would keep my same hours or something, I don't know, but... Especially if I could buy the company and be like, you know, I'm going to work five hours a week instead of 40-ish. Um, you know, if Well, I guess with post-scarcity, my other thing, if I had $91 million, I'd try and be super big into philanthropy, but people wouldn't need stuff anymore, so that would cut that back a bit. But there'd be cool projects to invest in. You know, we could have all the stuff we need here, but what if we want to stretch out Mars, Moon, whatever? Um, so, so give me an actual thing you'd be doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, day-to-day, I'd probably be playing a lot of, like, VR Skyrim. Okay. Pointless, right? <laughs> but, like, the things that would motivate me that i would be working towards slowly like so my day-to-day looked probably pretty boring especially for the first few years i would i'd pay people to do the fun stuff or the important stuff while i did the fun stuff but i would hope if this happened the first thing i would do would be to spend a considerable amount of time thinking of what i'm going to do Hmm. is that is that that a cop-out that is a super (laughs) cop-out but it works you could say this there's a pat line that you could use anything you could do i can do meta 
<laughs> nice. So, so that's a great answer. But yeah, I think that that's trying to answer it right away is pointless because I don't think I'd do it right. But if I literally could spend a month thinking about it and had all my stuff taken care of, I think I'd probably come up with a decent answer. So I'll put it on the back burner and maybe I'll get back to you in some weeks and have something laid out. Cool. All right. All right, me on the hotspot again. Now that I have some chance to think about it, and this is, I'm going to be as honest as I can be, I want to preserve my four Fs. So I would just train, have like a rocking body. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That would that would take whatever amount of time. And then I, if the materialist, if the if matter is somehow non-scarce, I would work on improving happiness or improving actualization among other people. And I think that's a vague enough answer to cover a lot of things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I don't know, maybe act. I got nothing. I'm very selfish. Yeah. And very, very vain. So, uh, yeah, just, I would say live. Well, make your make happiness and self-actualization available to others isn't really selfish and vain unless you're doing it just to glorify yourself. I think I am. But it, but if the fallout, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to just say if the fallout is more self-actualized and happy people, oh, more power to yeah. <laughs> So World peace. You got anything? Um, You know, lately I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos about uh, the work of director David Finch. And, ah. Yeah, and I just like watching them going into the stuff that he does it's it's amazing and i i don't know i would want to here's the thing i want to say that like i would like to write stories and then act in them and then like be a director and like work with all these people and put together these beautiful visual feasts that are just amazing but god writing a single book was such a pain in the ass and i can't imagine working like on an entire movie and i get why it takes hundreds of people just working themselves to the bone for months to put one of those out you know and i don't i don't it's weird because once you're an actor and you're really rich you don't need to do it for the money anymore and yet people still do it and like david finch doesn't need to keep directing he's set for life but he keeps doing it anyway for the joy of it and i don't know how i would ever get that level of passion where i just want to keep doing it forever like there's things that i sometimes get into something and I'll just work on it for 14 hours straight. And then there's times where I can work on something for months, but I, I look at people like that and maybe it's because I'm at such a distance that I don't know what their day to day is. And maybe in real life, they, they like work real crazy hard for like three days. And then for the next four days, they just kind of fucking veg out and be like, okay, doing nothing now, recharging and then get back into it. But from a distance, it looks like these people are fucking machines that are nonstop amazing at everything, and and it is intimidating to want to do that sort of thing. But I would like to do that sort of thing, like make stuff, entertain the people that I like, and become famous for being good at entertaining people or some shit. Right on. Although there's two things. One, you could get bored of doing something. You know, you said you don't. You could imagine doing something forever. I think that that's a trap that's easy to fall into. But you don't have to do the same thing forever, yeah, right? No, I know. You, you could act for a century until you got bored of it, and then try something else. Yeah. And as long as you're speak, mentioning YouTube channels, you mentioned two things that I think I would do if I had a lot of free mm -hmm. time. And I'm gonna shamelessly plug two YouTube channels. They'll send me a check. <laughs> uh, Binging with Babish, he makes uh, food from TV shows and and uh, movies. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'd love to get good at cooking. Cool. Currently, I don't, <laughs> and I think that'd be a lot of fun. Um, there'd be a lot of, you know, fun, I don't know what the right word is, magic, chemistry. I wonder what happened if I did this. And like, once you had like enough for, you know, foreknowledge behind that, you could anticipate what that'd be like. That'd be kind of fun to do, I imagine. 
Um, that and there's another tech, there's another uh, YouTube channel, sort of in a different direction, called Primitive Technology, where uh, they're like 15 minute videos ish, and it takes place over weeks. But there's no there's no uh, there's no talking, there's no music, there's no voiceover. It's just this guy in his shorts in the woods, you know, whittling sticks and making fire and making clay bricks and then you know making a hut. And uh, I think if I had all the time and money in the world, I could probably spend some summers doing nothing but that for fun. I might get bored, but, you know, it's the kind of thing, too, where the video is only a few minutes long. And, it, you know, then you read the long description of what he did. And it took, you know, place over months because a lot of the stuff took, you know, weeks to dry or something properly, right? So those are the where I could go back and do things to keep me interested in other stuff. But, yeah, YouTube channels give me some ideas. Oh, yeah. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about post-scarcity or what you're doing or anything along those lines? No, I think you guys did a great job of uh, getting to governance models and getting to the uh, local issues that are tangled up with this. But I do want to plug something. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, so I think the listeners should be familiar with an organization called Open Collective. Uh, it's a way for people to contribute. It's like Patreon, but for open source projects. And the thing itself is open sourced. But uh, I'm also working on something very, very similar. Uh, so as a 0.1 of what we're trying to do here and the things we talked about, uh, and this has been done previously as well, uh, I'm doing a project to connect every makerspace, hackerspace, bio, whatever kind of community lab on there onto one resource. Have you already uh, reached out to the DenHack people here? Yes, I've spoken to DenHack, I've spoken to the bio people, and there's uh, all the grunt work has been done by... So if you go to Hackerspaces Wiki and if you go to the MIT Fab Lab... Uh, their resource center all of the information is there but i just want to have one place with everything in it and also access rules built on top of it so uh if anybody wants to contribute just find me on twitter or just email me or just find me do somehow. you have a website yet for that idea no okay but uh yeah but just find me on twitter and uh we'll, we can get from there what's your twitter handle it's Yours truly, Mishra. My last name, M-I-S-H-R-A. So it's yours truly, M-I-S-H-R-A. And cool. we'll link it on the website as well. Got it. Uh, you. So you said you heard the cryptocurrency episode with Reese? Yes. Did we mess up anything? Is there anything you wanted to add or correct? <laughs> now, no offense to Reese, but I think uh, in the initial four or five, well, in the initial four or five uh, conversations, you guys were... I think you were trying to hammer out, well, why is this valuable? Why the fuck is this? Well, why do we pay money for something that doesn't exist or something like that? I think that that was very good. But something that we didn't talk about was governance models. So we did that. But only in crypto. Okay, now this is another project that I'm working on. So another plug. Uh, Starting on November, I'm going to say 15th. Because 7th is when it actually starts. But 15th is when it's public. Uh, I'm working on somebody with uh, creating interoperability and transparency platforms for these cryptocurrency platforms so there are there are projects uh that are focusing on interoperability and true decentralization that is non-custodial exchanges and stuff like that where the exchange is just an exchange right uh and and there's very 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 little governance structures or transparency structures built in for example there's no sec for crypto the obvious answer would be sec would have a bunch of guys or people doing branch five of sec would be sec crypto but i'm saying there's no sec is in securities and exchange commission yes and they're already working on this they already are enforcing some stuff wait Uh, the us sec is already working in crypto yes 
me. That wasn't that no, didn't take brought, that long at all. No, no, they brought two cases last month, and they are working to bring other cases as well. So uh, they defined what is uh, cryptocurrency and wh- what falls into equity and what doesn't fall into equity. That was in July, I think. And uh, there's a prominent research organization that just put out a document uh, for a law that says uh, it's akin to the 1201 rule that was Cory Doctorow was working against in uh, DMCA. So it says as long as you're working on it for a research purpose and you hold your own keys and you're not a custodial of other people's keys, you don't have to comply with uh, financial regulation disclosure forms. Ah. So it's not so. So if I have my own wallet, it's fine. But right. Coinbase is going to have to Coinba- start. Exactly. Okay. So uh, they're just trying to codify that into law. And one good thing about being in Colorado is uh, Jared Polis is the chair of uh, the Congressional Crypto, sorry, the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. So and I think he. Uh, he lives here in Denver. More. Boulder. Boulder. Neat. Cool. So. I didn't know either of those things. That's really interesting. Yeah. We think the SEC, I mean, the general uh, perception is the SEC is bad at new tech, <laughs> yes. but they've Governments been... Governments tend, or our no. government tends to be shitty at new tech. No, any government. Yeah. You, you guys want to talk about India and demonetization and identity linking? That's a whole other episode if you want to talk to me about identity, and you'll see my libertarian tendencies there, but <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, they're uh, working very, very hard uh, with the crypto uh, industry just to get on point, and there are... Uh, analysis tools built in and there's rules being written as we speak so cool well all right so get out if you can yeah <laughs> i god i saw yesterday bitcoin hit almost six thousand it's more over six now it's over six i heard yeah. there was a, like a mini crash earlier mini today. crash it's already gone it's already gone okay yeah. i was gonna buy on the next mini crash i saw i don't know if in the episode i mentioned that i sold yes yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever. As in for a hundred bucks. Like, it's not like I had my retirement in there and I went ahead and cashed well, out because I thought well, I was going to bust. But you didn't have your retirement in there after you sold. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Well, so next time if it goes down, then I'll buy back in. I, I've been thinking about that. I've been checking back on it every couple days, which is not enough. I should find a way to automate. There's a way to automate this. I just need to get in on that. So there's futures exchanges where you can put, you can buy put contracts. And that's where, like, if it drops below four, then yeah. four thousand, I can but buy yeah, you, this much. Th- but that would yeah. be a very if. Because we don't know the timing, right? So if you have, if you're gonna automate this in some way, you can make a better put contract. But you can have a long term put contract that says, next three months, if it hits this price, buy it. If it hits this price, sell it. So, is there anything like that currently? For uh, there are for the future Bitcoin? exchanges, but uh, I, there's roundabout ways of financially engineering financial products that are similar to these contracts. So yes, what what I'm saying is, with Stephen's mad programming knowledge. Could he create this tool that he was just speaking yes, of? Absolutely. Someone could. Well, I know someone could. Had is it already out there? Would he be the first on this ship if no. he were to build it? No. Okay. Yeah, I've definitely seen stuff like this already where you can. But one set thing up on that it. I do want to—I'm sorry to disturb—but everybody acknowledges that the user experience side of anything crypto is horrible. Mm-hmm. Right? It's shit beyond shit. So if you so Coinbase is popular because of that reason. You just—it's just like signing up to anything else. So if if steven or anybody wants to work on this i would say just work on the ux side of things which doesn't mean a snappy node website look at the whole process and just simplify it greatly if you can create a tool that'll that'll track the price of bitcoin and allow people to make pit, uh, put contracts out there and charge 0.1 percent as a fee for whatever they end up buying you could make a lot of money or if you're really like want to do this 
you could get a pool together and be JP Morgan. You could call her stuff. You could just say, this is the price. I will do, I don't know, 50 basis points on either way. Give me your stuff. I've got a long way to go before I could do either of those things. <laughs> I'll, put it, I'll put it on the list. Cool. Right. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to plug before because you asked me. Uh, there's this researcher out of Stanford uh, Law School who's, who's running the legal design lab at Stanford. Uh, Margaret somebody i'm i hate myself for forgetting her last name uh but yeah just uh, just look up uh, legal design lab and i think they're going through some of the ux problems of law as it is now so i think we can adapt those to i mean i think this is the good audience to kind of just look at those models and come up with ideas so legal design lab cool and um we only have two pieces of listener feedback from from recent because we're busting these out you know fast to catch up and they're both from the EA episode. Would you like to stay for the listener feedback section? Hell yeah. All right. So, let, oh crap. Do we have the music? We don't. Uh, Kyle's not on vacation yet, is he? I don't know. We'll have to ask him. I think he said something about November 2nd. So my plan was to email him and get this. I also want his specs for what he's been doing to calibrate noise, you know, like uh, equalization and stuff. Yeah. Because I'm sure he's doing it better than I did. Okay. Uh, so, before we continue, we have to thank one of our supporters. Okay, so uh, we're thinking Pavel Paltsev, and uh, in case we've thanked him already, also thinking Cody. Oh God, it looks French. R I O U X. Rue. 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 Okay, Cody Rue. Uh, I hope that's your the correct pronunciation of your name. Thank you guys for helping to support the show and making this possible. I mean, I can't say anything other than what you just said, but yeah, it's, it's very much appreciated. You know. We do this because we love it, but we also love not having to pay our own hosting bills and stuff. So <laughs> thanks for keeping this podcast alive. Because at some point, we would dry up and probably quit doing it. So it's really uh, you know, on you for making this possible. Yeah. And for, for keeping us, like, it, it, I find it motivating that, that people like it enough to throw in, like, a buck or two. I'm like, it's just, it's a nice feeling. Um, okay, going on to listener feedback. Uh, these are both from our EA episode that aired recently. Pearl Geek says, does the concept of immutable contracts written as code scare anyone else? <laughs> yes, me. <laughs> I have gray hairs because of that. I'm really? sorry. Yes. Well, would you like to say? Well, there's this, uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Larry Lessig. With what, what? Lawrence Lessig. Uh, I'm not. Lawrence Lessig is this uh, professor from Harvard who ran for president last time and lost horribly, but he has this idea of uh, things are built with code law markets and something else this is off the top of my head so i can't forget but larry that's like you'll find out uh the issue with immutable contracts is humans are writing these contracts the same reason the dao hack happened was even though so there can be syntactical errors in the writing of the contract dao being decentralized autonomous organization okay so it was a place where everybody put money in and voted on how to spend that money ah okay right and it was based off the ethereum smart contract so I don't think the tools are there. They're they're there now with uh, versions of uh, provability. You said the reason that hack ha- that hack happened was what? I interrupted you right in the middle of that sentence. No, no. So that the Oak hack happened uh, 2014, and because of that, uh, the thing forked, the chain forked, and now the latest iteration has a. Uh, if people listening are into provability logic. Uh, something called Viper with a programming language where you can design provable programs, for lack of a better word. So there's processes available for immutable contracts to be provable, right? So you can say, given these like circumstances... Provable, do you mean 
what does provable mean in this case? I would automated test plus one, right? You can test a program to be syntactically correct. Okay. That's what I think Stephen can talk a bit more about that. But but you can you also have to prove that this will not have logical loopholes or issues that are not syntactical but are runtime errors for lack of a better word right but they are in the damn language so it's not really a fault but it's an exploit and uh that uh worries me and people are working on solving that issue and i think if immutable contracts is that person's question pearl geek there's this uh ribbon farm post called the unforgettable or I don't know what, but he talks about the blockchain having a unforgetting memory. Or he's saying, uh, VGR says, uh, there's a there's a lot of history being written by the victors happening in the current contract world. So how do humans realize that? Oh, if you if I wrote an immutable contract and everybody on the blockchain knows that this deal fell apart because pa- partner X versus partner Y did the bad thing. Partner Y or partner X is going to have negative or positive effects based on. So it's going to, if it's open and immutable, there are societal level issues. If it's closed immutable, there are program level issues that are people are working on. And one more plug. And I, I know I'm talking too much, but yeah, this, this is, is just a great idea. No, no, no. I, I, it's just that I've been looking at this for a very long time. There's this company in Hong Kong or, okay. I'm, the, the name of the company is Legalese. I think it's out of Singapore. They are also... So they want to build a Turing-complete language for law. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know, and they've been working on it for the last two years. So Pearl Geek, look up Legalese and look up all the stuff they're doing. Do you think, do you think that's even possible? They're trying, man. I don't know. I mean, kind of the purpose of law is that when we don't like things, we hack around it, right? That's not the purpose. That's not the stated purpose. The stated purpose. Well, yes. The stated purpose is not that, but... Right. So back to our implementation <laughs> issue and the jobs to be done framework, those guys are making a Turing complete. So they're going to make explicit what is now implicit, right? That sounds awesome. I I, I think that sounds horrible. <laughs> no, why is it horrible? Uh, because I think that there are sometimes consequences of laws that you don't notice when you first write the law. And then someone comes around and hacks the hell out of it. And, and, you know, the judge and or jury says basically, okay, you're following the letter, but we all knew what we meant. And fuck you, you're going to jail anyway. You don't get no, to no, get no, around that's this. That's wrong. I'm just saying if you – if so I think that one of the purposes of making a Turing complete system for law is to reduce that discrepancy of saying the difference between letter and spirit should be minimal. Yeah, but I don't think you'll ever you'll ever reduce that to zero. I don't think humans right, are good enough at no, writing no. laws to... Tending to zero, man. It's jazz. <laughs> Dr. Cornell West had this great line about, I think, happiness when somebody asked him. He said, are you happy? He said, no, I, I'm a jazz-like Christian where I have to be working in the flow always. So this is everything's tending to. It can't, it can't be zero. Okay. I, 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 like the, I like the human aspect being in there because it does sometimes make things rife for corruption but on the other hand it also means that the system will never uh have complete control that humans will have some level of being able to step in and and say no we are nullifying that particular right you can wait 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 you you can always update it you can always say based on v1.3 section 4 
you're guilty of whatever crime you just did. Mm. But given that this case brought up whatever new evidence it brought up, we are amending that. Oh, okay. So it, the contract is immutable, but not the the legal system itself. You know what I mean? The person who got screwed or got away with it would have still get screwed or away get away with it though, right? There'd be We're no minimizing. way to that. Come on, okay, I'm not God. Right, Stupid trying to find all the loopholes. I know, I don't know, but that's great. Yeah. I think if people just did that in this fashion. Someone needs to look into the darkness and point out the problems, otherwise they would just run exactly. with it. So, uh, you know, if, if you can get us closer to zero by pointing out issues, yeah, that's, that's, great. that's the way yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it. Uh, Pearl Geek goes on to say, <laughs> we only got <laughs> one line into his question. <laughs> As a software developer, I know that all non-trivial code contains bugs, so the ability to patch it and especially apply security patches quickly is critical. But this is not just a hypothetical problem. It has happened in the past and has led to a hard fork in order to enforce the spirit of the contract. What there you were you saying. Well, what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is the exact opposite of what the blockchain fans advertise as the main benefit of smart contracts. Which illustrates the bigger problem. All the regulation and controls around the financial industry are there for a reason. It's very tempting as a software developer to think we can do without all this crap until your bitcoins are stolen or all your Ethereum coins evaporate due to a bug in a smart contract. Or you fall for a fraudulent ICO or a Bitcoin pump and dump scheme. I like the idea of cryptocurrencies, but I wouldn't want my regular paycheck to be distributed through them. I probably can't defend my cryptocurrency assets against organized crime or even a clever and ethically unrestrained trader. That's what I want the state to do for me. And I think he brings up a lot of good points. On the other hand, a different commenter afterwards pointed out that he was, they didn't use this word, this is my own wording, that he was showing his having a functional government privilege. (laughs) 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 That there's places where the government really sucks and their currency is horrible and they don't protect you from organized crime or unrestrained traders and that cryptocurrencies work better than any other option they have in those places. That doesn't invalidate ProGeek's point. Exactly. So if Progic lives in a place with a functional government, then yeah. But if you don't, then your second best, your you know your new best alternative is cryptocurrency. I think I just want to say one thing about Progic because I don't know who this person is, but he's bringing up a lot of great points. Uh, he ended the he or she ended the thing with saying, "This is what was the last sentence." That's what I want the state to do for me. There you go. I think that's a good uh, assumption of responsibility of saying this is not me. I want this. I want an external party to affect me this way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think one point that I want ProGeek to know is being an outlaw means exactly that. The definition of an outlaw used to be that you're outside of the law. That doesn't mean you're wrong. You're just outside it. Right. So outside the law gives you freedom. Also, no recourse. Okay. And also for you, uh, people are working on uh, some uh, transparency platforms. Do you consider cryptocurrency to be outside the law still? No. No? Okay. No. Because... Well, outside the law, how? I'm saying Isn't people with jurisdictional power will come to your home with a gun and yeah. make you do things. So there's nothing outside of law as we know it in the enforceable way. Yeah. But how, do we need a, lack of a better word, legal written script for enforcement? Yes, it is outside of that boundary. Uh, and then I had one comment from Athator. Both these comments are from are separate, by the way. Saying, concerning the miners, uh, we mentioned in our podcast that 10 people hold the majority of the mining power. That is a bit of an oversimplification, but I understand what they mean. Essentially, many rigs machines are owned by individual actors. They could mine on their own, but that means they would very rarely get one very large reward. And uh, meanwhile, they're bleeding money from the electricity expenses. 
So this is countered by joining large mining pools where they get paid on a regular basis as a portion of the reward based on how much hashing power they contributed to the pool. And the problem is that large mining pools are run by a single mining operator who then has enormous influence over the mining pool. But it's important to note that individual miners can always jump ship and divert their hashing power from one pool to another or even strike out on their own and this is where economic incentives come into play. If a mining pool operator tries to undermine the network for personal profit motives, which may de risk devaluing Bitcoin as a currency, the individual miners would lose out on their holdings as their holdings lose value. This would provide incentive to move to the mining pool, which maintains the status quo. Which I thought was interesting. And he goes on to say that there's five major forces at play in the Bitcoin environment. The miners, the developers, the users, the merchants, and the exchanges. Each have their own interests and constantly push for those, but the way Bitcoin was designed with its game-theoretical economic incentives is that all will only profit if they can find a consensus. Uh, that's why you see so much political posturing at the moment. Everyone is fighting for power, but realizing that unless you have everyone swimming the same way as you, you lose money. So this, you, you were like, ah, do you, do you have comments on this? I do, and I'm, I don't want to keep ragging on this, but... The poster is right. And uh, for people listening, if they want to get into some math on this, there's this great Medium post by a company called 21.co, paying homage to the 21 million Bitcoins that there will always be. So they, uh, if the, for the economics geeks listening, there's something called a Gini coefficient, which measures inequality. Mm -hmm. So number of participants versus how much they have of a particular asset or whatever that is. So uh, the post is called Quantifying Decentralization by Balaji Srinivasan, the CEO of 21.co. And they go into all the factors that this post poster wrote about, and they show you in some detail what that looks like. The one point that I disagree with this person is when they laid out the five actors, mm -hmm. think of, so how are they are not any different from the five actors in the fiat system, mm -hmm. right? Only difference is the the developers are a separate group unto themselves with zero or minimal incentive to to maintain status quo. They will do whatever they want to do. The point is, if nobody's writing the code, well, what are we doing here? I mean, what are we running? We're running code that somebody else wrote, right? So if, if we adopt code as the consensus mechanism, then I don't know what Bitcoin Core or Ethereum Core has to do with anything. It's just get to popularity first, right? So the, all of the crypto economic headbanging is great and the philosophizing is great. But if it was worth four cents, none of this would happen. All of these discussions are happening because there's a profit motive and people want to hold on to their profits. So it's not really to the betterment of the system. It is to the betterment of people holding most in that system. And it sounds like you are upset by this too. Yes, because there's a whole bunch of politicizing and grandstanding happening about weird technical details about how big a block should be or what the consensus more, how data is transferred. And like the average user does not care. This is a, I think one of the problem with security, computer security people is they're always the smartest people in the room and always have the, not always, but are most or have sharp elbows. And I don't care that I have 15-factor authentication on my phone. I don't. Get me the money. Make me do stuff. I don't care. All righty. Um, after Tor's comment went on for a while, it was really interesting. And uh, they end by saying, it's a new world of governance, and we don't know how it'll work out. But so far, eight years running and growing. That is all I have. Did you have anything? 
Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we have been going for about an hour and a half, so wrap it up. I think so. Okay, great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me, and uh, I would love to do this again. Awesome. Thank you for doing the podcast. Likewise, I would love to have you back on, and thanks for thanking us. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of cool. I don't know what to say, but uh, yeah, no, for sure. I can only think of three more things that I want to talk to you about, so I think we can have an excuse to go on uh, sure. another time if that works. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.